We're going to be continuing on with our Explore God series as we continue talking about people's biggest questions about God, faith, um, Christianity. And today we will be reading John chapter 14, verses 5 through 11. And if you do not have a physical Bible and you wish to have one this morning, ushers will be coming up and down the aisles giving them for you. So just go ahead and wave your hands so they can give you one. But we'll be reading John chapter 14, verses 5 through 11. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or that at least believe the evidence of the works themselves. Thank you so much, Daniela. Uh, yeah, I do want to put my uh, vote of approval. If you could come out to Welcome Lunch, we'd love to have you there, share more about the different happenings in the life of the church. Uh, as Daniel said, today we're continuing our series in Explore God, and the question we're considering is, is Christianity too narrow? Is Christianity too narrow? Or maybe you've thought of it this way. Why does it seem so exclusive? Or maybe you've thought it's worse. It's prejudiced. It's, it's bigoted. Uh, today, I thought we would just go ahead and take the bull by its horns and look at this very famous and quite controversial statement of Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is considered uh, by many theologians to be one of Jesus' quote, hard sayings. And it's a no wonder, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is considered one of the the hard sayings, and it's one we've got to wrestle with. Uh, The the goal of this series, as as we've been making our way through these big questions about God, faith, and Christianity, has not been, continues not to be, to just go ahead and convince you to believe already, right? Show up, hear this packaged thought, and go home, and go thou believe. You know, that's that's not the thought. It's not the goal. Nor has the goal been just to remove all doubt. In fact, uh, in our very text today, we have two of Jesus' main disciples, Philip and Thomas, who themselves are struggling with faith, doubt, and confusion. Uh, Excuse me, doubt, confusion, and actually a little bit of skepticism. And they got to see Jesus in the flesh. So if you're here today and you put yourself in the category of struggling with things like doubt, confusion, maybe even some skepticism, you're in good company. It seems to me, by rule of thumb, we got to extra pay attention to the controversial statements. Statements like these, because these are the ones where we're really going to understand what Jesus is all about. And that's, that's the goal of the series. The goal of the series is to tackle important matters that are too important not to wrestle with. And so today we're going to look at one of these very controversial statements to try to understand what Jesus is about. Because Jesus came teaching love one another, right? He hung out a lot with the poor. 
He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. Uh, But there were a lot of people throughout history who did similar things. Teaching, love one another, hanging out with the poor, doing their best to serve them, care for them. But there's something about Jesus that led him to be, by just about any measure, the most influential figure in all of history. It's not because of the uncontroversial things. It's because of claims like the one, the claim like the, claims like the one he puts out here today in our text here in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, it's, it's, it's this claim that actually led thousands of his followers to not only within a few years of his death believe in him, but to worship him. So today we're going to look at this claim. It's an exclusive claim. There's no doubt about it. But it's also very inclusive. And please, I'm not trying to do a Jedi mind trip as I say that, right? I don't think these things are necessarily mutually exclusive. We're going to look at this exclusive claim that's also inclusive and try to unpack this either greatest of all claims or craziest of all claims. Wouldn't you say? And we're going to try to unpack its implications, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll, then we'll jump in. Father, as ever, but maybe all the more today with a topic like, like this one, uh, I pray for your spirit to help me communicate your word, and more importantly, to help each of us understand what you have before us today. Would you please open up your word, including this challenging yet wonderful claim that you, you sent your son to be the way, the truth, and the life. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so let's first address the elephant in the living room, okay? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, Many will at that wonder, well, isn't that just the craziest, most arrogant claim ever uttered? Uh, Maybe that's you. And, you know, you'd have good reason to think that, right? We've had plenty of cultish figures throughout history, plenty of dictators who've said some pretty outlandish things. Well, this statement of Jesus is way up there with any of them. The only problem when we start to consider this being uh, an arrogant claim or a crazy claim is we start to see that we can't just take the claim in and of itself, right? We gotta take the claim, but we also gotta take, take into account the person who's making the claim, right? Because when it comes to like, you know, uh, cultish figures or historical, you know, dictators who've made some pretty loony, cuckoo, you know, claims, uh, we're, easily able to dismiss those things, not only because of the claim itself, but also because of the person making that, making that claim, right? You just go, well, that person's insane, so whatever. And in the few times in history where some of these bad actors have made some pretty bad claims to have some bad consequences in human history where people have believed them for a period of time, it's come out later, well, they were cuckoo, right? The problem with this, though, is when you look at Jesus' life, many experts both religious and non-religious alike, all say that Jesus was essentially the personification of humility. Jesus personified humility, even as he was making a claim such as this one. And so we gotta consider who he is and what he's about. And you know, I would just say, we're, we're not gonna take the time to do this, one of the ways to go about this would be to read some of the gospel accounts that we have written about, them, the biographical accounts that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John recorded of what Jesus was about, what he said. You can look into these things and go, okay, what is this person making this big of a claim? Okay, that would be a worthwhile thing to do if you're interested in this. But we don't, for our purposes today, have to look all that far and we can just look directly in our context to start to get our minds around this. Because by the time in John's account, chapter 14, which is where we are today, Jesus is in the middle of what uh, theologians call his upper room discourse. Okay, this, this, this 
precious last few hours that Jesus had with his 12 main disciples before he would be arrested and go to the cross. John, in his account, gives five chapters. He devotes five chapters to this upper room discourse alone, where he's talking in this precious few hours before his, before his death. And so John 13, where it starts with this upper room discourse, he goes and very famously washes the feet of his disciples. And then he reminds them of what he had been telling them for quite some time up to that point, that he was getting ready to leave, that he was going to be killed and ultimately raised again to life. He's saying all these things. And uh, Thomas who, by the way, I would like to say embodies the spirit of this series, this Explore God series. He says, Lord, we do not know what you're saying, essentially. You say you're going. Well, we don't know how to go where you're going. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, and he's standing there right in front of Jesus. Jesus had literally, just before the text we're in today, uttered the words that are often shared at Christian funeral services, where it says, I am going, but do not let your hearts be troubled. Because I'm going ahead of you to prepare in advance a place for you. And, and Thomas is just like, he's not, he's not catching on. He's not tracking. And he says, well, I, we don't know how to get there. The big point I'm trying to make here is consider the tone in which Jesus is saying this massive of all claims. What we don't have here is, if I can characterize it a little bit, a story of Jesus going up on the mountainside and saying, come hither, Young flock, come to me and hear this truth that I'm going to dispense from on high. I am the way, the truth. We have, we have moments before he's going to be arrested where he's just washed the feet of his followers, when he's embodied for a few years now humility to its highest degree. He's literally in the act of comforting them, even though he's getting ready to go to his death. And he makes this claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. Do you, do you see that? Even just the straight-up context, you got to go, well, is this guy cuckoo, or is, what's going on here? We've, we've got to wrestle with it. We've got to come to, come to grips with it. Is this, a cra- is this the craziest, most arrogant thing ever said? Listen to how Bono, the lead singer of U2, concluded on this matter. He said, Jesus went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the son of God, or he was nuts. Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. I mean Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just don't believe it. It's a, it's, it's a high-stakes it's a high-stakes claim that Jesus is putting forth here. There's no doubt about that. It's, which means, especially given his character, we have to all the more double-click into it. We've got, to, we've got to press into it and go, what is he saying? What does it mean? What are its implications? All right, so let's look at the claim itself and, and try our best to unpack it. First, and I'm going to spend more time on this one because it's, it's the thrust of what he's saying. Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus said, I am the way. The way the Bible teaches it is there are two ways. There's the way of self, and now with Jesus, there's the way of, of him, the way of Jesus. There's the way of self, the way, there's the way of Jesus. Uh, CT last week, I thought very helpfully, um, helped us consider the, the important topic of pain and suffering, right? How a, a good God could, could allow it. And he led us through the text of Romans 8, which is a favorite of mine, in many ways, it's a wonderful chapter for, for a lot of reasons. But Romans 8 
in particular I love because of its use of the metaphor of groaning. It talks about how, how creation and, and all of us are, are groaning because, one, the world is not how it ought to be. We all just deep down know it's just not how it ought to be. And number two, we're groaning because we long for it deep down for it to be renewed or restored or made right. And so, and so we're groaning. Sometimes we can't even put words to it. I mean, this really resonates with me. It's like this, you read the news and you're just groaning. You don't even realize it, but you're groaning. Well, the Bible teaches that, that all the pain and suffering, its root origin is ultimately because of what the Bible calls our sin. Uh, I was rec- uh, over the last little bit, I've been reading um, quite a bit of psychology and history and all that sort of stuff, um, a lot of which has, has been of the non-religious variety. And it's been really striking to me that many people, many, many expert scholars, uh, really do look to the biblical or the Torah account of the fall of humankind to understand the human condition. Okay? Not just Christians, not just Jews, but just even from a secular viewpoint, a lot of people will look to that story to understand the human condition. And, of course, you know the story, the, uh, the story, the account of original sin, as biblical scholars talk about it. God said in the garden, when all things were perfect, he said, you can eat of anything, just not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, real quickly, sometimes uh, we'll be asked uh, at one of our gatherings or a friend, whenever this thought comes up, so well, why did God even give us the choice, right? If we could just, if he knew, if he knew we were going to mess up or even the possibility of us messing up, why did he give us that choice? Well, it seems to be quite clear that he gave us that choice so that we would have the choice in, Choice not to. Like, if, if, you're gonna, if he wants us to be able to be in a loving relationship with him, which is really the point, we have to be able to choose to not be in that loving relationship. So he gave us the choice, and he said, okay, of all the, tree, of all the fruit in the, in the garden, just don't eat of the, the, quote, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And even secular scholars are looking at this to be like, man, this is really helpful to understand the human condition. Because the idea here is this is the root of all of our, what the Bible calls sin. Sin at its core is us putting ourselves in the place of God. Putting ourselves in the place of, we are arbiters of what is right and wrong, good and evil. We get to decide. And in the case of maybe we are following God, we, we consider ourselves religious, it's we come across a choice and temptation is to go, well, I, I know better than what God knows, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Or we come to the choice and we go, you know what, maybe God says that, but he's really holding out on what I know to be better for me. Really at its core, that's what the Bible calls sin. It's putting ourselves in the place of, of God. And what it also says in that story is God said, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you do, the day you do, you will surely die. Now, an important biblical study there shows you that when they did actually eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that same day, they actually didn't keel over on the spot. So it couldn't have meant just physical death, although God would go on to explain that physical death would come a part of it, become a part of it. What he was ultimately talking about is that spiritual death came into the picture. We were separated from God in that moment. We were separated from the holiness and perfect relationship that we had with God. And with that, all the things that we'd grown about. And so this is what the Bible calls sin. And, and it's really the way of self. The, the Bible says it. He says, it says it in, in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. We, we are separated from God. The way of, of self whether it's through religion or apart from religion, is really saying, well, I know what's best. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be my own God. My choices, my works make me me. And, you know, in the non-religious sense, 
that's, you know, frankly, that's something actually the Bible goes, goes ahead and commends. It says if, if there is no God, and more specifically, if there is no Jesus, you might as well, quote, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The Bible has it built into the scriptures of saying, hey, if, if God's not a real thing, and if specifically Jesus didn't rise again from, from the dead, you might as well just go about and live up the life, maximize, pain, uh, maximize pleasure, minimize pain. Uh, this really goes back to that first sermon in the series, if you were with us, Does Life Have Meaning?, you know, there's many ways that we can seek meaning in life apart from religion or a higher power. And that it can be in hedonism, humanism, uh, existentialism. Those are the sorts of things. But the reality of all of those, seems bleak to state it, is there's no hope. It means all there is is this life. So we might as well just maximize this time and minimize the pain so that we can just enjoy this life as, as much as we can. But the way of self and religion as the Bible actually implies, is actually much worse. Huh? Is the Bible religious? The way of self and religion is trying to live in such a way that you get into the good graces of God or avoid some form of God or higher powers curses against you. So avoid doing bad things. But you know what this is? This is living a life in fear. It's like that, you know, the idea of a God or higher power up there with lightning bolts just waiting for you or me to mess up so we can get... So you can zap us. But that's living in fear, right? Wouldn't you say? I mean, I'm characterizing it, but if you think about it, in real terms, if we're living that way, it's like, oh no, we better watch out. We better make sure we're... it's the way of self. It's just the way of self through religion. It's living in fear. But guess what? It's also living without hope. That's why the Bible's like, you might as well just choose not religion if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in specifically the resurrection of Jesus, because you're living in fear and you're living without hope. And why are you living without hope? Because try as you or I might, we cannot, in an ultimate sense, be good. Live good. Uh, I read an article uh, in college, end of year, or in grad school, somewhere around there. Very fascinating study written by a secular uh, scholar uh, who surveyed uh, all of the major world religions. And in this survey, uh, this gal, this expert, concluded that when you look at all their ethical teachings, they all pretty much line up to be about the same. Now, she was careful to say, you know, there's some varying degrees and there's some differences, but they're all nuanced. Again, not being Christian, not being a Jew herself, she said, you know, what you could really do is actually summarize it in the Ten Commandments. Like, they're all more or less just, just do that and you'll be good. The problem with that is none of us can do that, and it's not even close. Romans 3 says... All have sinned. There's no one who's righteous. There's no one who even seeks good in an ultimate sense. And you know what? Just from personal, uh, by way of personal example, I don't need the Bible to tell me that about myself. I mean, I'm a person who's trying my best. I always have to try to live a good life. I mean, please hear in the spirit which I'm saying this, okay? I'm, I'm trying to live a good life, and yet even as I try to live a good life, I live to realize I realize I am not doing that or able to do that anywhere near as much as I feel deep down I ought to be. Is this making sense? I don't need the Bible to tell me that. But, and I would just say, it seems to me, the more I live life, the more it seems clear, I think, to all of us that we recognize that to be the case. We, we might not call it with religious terms of sin or whatever that might be, but we recognize that we're flawed and we recognize that our actions or inactions, whatever it might be, do have consequences, do hurt the people around us, the people who we also love deeply and dearly. Roommates, coworkers, spouse, family members. The way of self, whether it's through religion or not, the Bible says, leads to death. And that death is ultimately spiritual. It's separation from God. 
But, Romans 6.23 goes on to say, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way. Notice that Jesus is not saying, I am showing you the way. Here's the way. He's literally saying, I am the way. And that's so important because we see that there's the way of self and there's the way of, of Jesus. Christianity is not, here are Jesus' teachings. Here's, here's religion 2.0. Now go follow this. Because guess what? We still wouldn't be able to do that, is the thought. Christianity is, here is the person of Jesus and what he has accomplished on, your half, on, on behalf of you and on behalf of me. On the cross. It says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. It's, it sounds kind of cryptic, but in light of what, you hear today, uh, what we're talking about, um, hopefully this makes sense. It says, God, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is talking about Jesus being the way, and specifically how he was the way through the cross, where he died on the cross for our sins. It's actually more nuanced than that, theologically speaking. He became our sin. He was condemned as a sinner in our place when we receive him by faith, the Bible tells us. And actually, uh, Romans 5 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? The gospel is literally good news. It's not good advice. It's not here. You just now need to follow what Jesus is saying. He'd be the first to say, you can't do it. I can't do it. The way is not his teachings. The way is literally what he has accomplished for us. So Christianity at its core is not following doctrine. It's following the person of Jesus and receiving what he accomplished for us by faith. And that by faith is of so much importance here. Because by faith means it's something we receive having not brought anything to the table. You see that? There's nothing we can do to earn God's graces or good favor. We just come and we say, I see it, I believe it, thank you. We receive the grace of God. That's the way of Jesus. Um, some of you, I wonder if you've, you've heard this story before, but it's been said that there was a, a conference of Christian leaders who got together in a hotel conference room to discuss uh, various things. At one point, they were kind of talking about it, debating what makes Christianity unique. And it was going back and forth, and they couldn't come to consensus. Well, one of the conference attendees happened to see C.S. Lewis, former atheist, turned Christian apologist, which you'd never call himself that, uh, walking by out in the lobby, and this attendee went out and said, there's C.S. Lewis. He's kind of written on the subject. We should ask him. Come on in, Mr. Lewis. What do you think? We're talking about what makes Christianity so unique. What is your take? And it's been said that C.S. Lewis in that moment looked at them. What makes Christianity unique? Grace. And then he walked away. The way of Jesus is different than the way of self because of one word, grace. It's because what Jesus has done for us completely, we can only receive it by faith, meaning we don't bring anything to the table. And that's why it's the gospel. That's why it's called the good news. Is it an exclusive claim? Yeah, it's an exclusive. And you know what? I'll take it further. It's offensive. Sorry, I'm not trying to like end the sermon. <laughs> Scary. It is offensive. How is it offensive? Because the gospel at its core is saying you and me, all of us, are sinners. We are all broken. We all feel the effects 
and even perpetuate the effects of pain in the world in varying degrees. We all need outside help. So it's exclusive. It's also offensive, but it's good news because it's inclusive as well. How is it inclusive? Well, well, Jesus said many times, many places, let anyone come to me. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and I will give them rivers of living water. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who would open the door and have me and I will eat with them and they will eat with me. That's the gospel. That's what you can receive today. You can receive. Jesus is the way. He also says that he is the truth. We'll be a little bit quicker on this one. One, because the main thrust of what Jesus is saying is, I'm the way. But two, come back in two weeks. We're going to talk about this a little bit more uh, specifically. Jesus said, I'm the way. But he also said, I am the truth. Notice again, Jesus is not saying, I'm showing you the way to truth. He's literally saying, I am truth. That's a massive claim. Philip, like Thomas, embodies the spirit of explorer God. Philip is over here. He's saying, you said there's a way to the Father. Jesus, would you just show us the Father, and that'll be enough? Jesus makes this massive claim. And the guys don't go, oh, that's wonderful. Help me understand that. They, they, Philip gets caught up on that one detail. You're talking about the Father again, Jesus. Why don't you just show us him? You got an in with him. Can you show us? And if you read the story, you can see that it basically stings Jesus in that moment. He goes, Philip, what are you, what are you talking about? Don't you know me? And he goes on to say, like, if you know me, you know the Father. It's in this intimate moment that Jesus kind of responds to him. But then he says this down in verse 11. He says, Philip, believe me, when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the evidence of the works. So in responding to Philip and through Philip responding to us when we're trying to check the validity or truth of all this, Jesus was saying to him, to us, Listen to my words, read my words, and look at the evidence of the works. So the first one is we can, we can understand Jesus' truth by looking at his words. Do his words ring true? Again, come back in two weeks. We're going to do more of a deep dive as we look at the, the validity of the Bible. Is the Bible reliable? Two weeks. But let me just say this on this point. When you look at the teachings of Jesus, again, experts both religious and non-religious say that you really can't improve. Jesus' ethical teachings haven't been approved upon for, for 2,000 years. I mean, we've been making so many advancements and improvements as human beings over the last 2,000 years, right? But there really hasn't been any ethical advancement, improvement since the time Jesus spoke the word. I mean, if, if you want to just have something to read this afternoon, that's kind of a bite-sized chunk, just read his most famous of all sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, through seven. You'll just see things like you would expect someone who claimed to be God saying. I'll leave it at that. But the point is, check for yourself. Jesus is saying to Philip, he's saying to us, look, do, my, do the words that I'm saying ring true? John's own account starts by describing Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is literally the Word. In talking to Philip, Jesus is like, all you need are my words. But if that doesn't do it for you, Philip, look at the evidence of the works. There's many angles we can look at that from. Allow me just to consider one. In today's day and age, you can hopefully look to see how Jesus' teachings play out in his followers, in his community. Now, as soon as I say that, we need to all understand that there are plenty of Christians and plenty of people calling themselves to be Christians who have done terrible things 
in the name of Jesus, wouldn't you say? In fact, I remember um, coming out of a history class uh, in, in undergrad uh, with somebody who uh, had gotten to know me, knew that I was a Christian, and one, one day after class, I could tell she had just been waiting to ask this question for however, however, like half the semester. And she's like, David, how can Christians call themselves Christians when they have the crusades in the background? Like, how can, how can they, you know, follow a faith that condones such behavior? And I started with apologizing on behalf of people who call themselves Christians doing things, just terrible things. I mean, that's, that's an everyday occurrence, by the way. Just look at the election cycles. That happens all the time. But then I kind of considered with her some of the statements that Jesus said, and I, just, I tried to help her see what I, what I believe from, clearly from Jesus' teaching is that there's no way you could justify things like the Crusades through Jesus' teaching. That's just that's absurd. So, but can you see Jesus' teachings living out in people? Even Christians who are trying their best to follow this, we've already under, we already can say and understand, aren't going to live this out perfectly by any stretch or measure, right? But hopefully you can see it somewhat. Okay, so what could this look like? For instance, hopefully Christians that you know in your life are quick to, say, admit when they mess up, own their faults. You know, one of the things I'm groaning about when I read the news these days is we as a society have basically zero ability to own our faults. Have you noticed that? I, and I, I am groaning as I'm reading this. Now, look, Christians are not, I am not good at owning faults. We know all the psychological things are going on in us. It's hard. We've got a sense of pride, all that stuff. But Christians ought to put that aside, and not just to cover their own bottom, but actually for the sake of being good and right for the reason why God calls us into, say, you know what, I messed up, I'm sorry. Let me give you another example of seeing God's, uh, uh, Jesus' teachings hopefully lived out in Christians. And I think it's apropos to today's topic, is Christianity too narrow? We ought to be able to look at Christian communities that are trying their best to live this out, embody Jesus' teachings, and see how they respond to people who see things differently than them. You tracking that thought? We live in a society that, by the way, has lots of groups and communities that are essentially all exclusive. Just to talk about that for a second. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Just to be an exclusive group doesn't, isn't inherently wrong. All groups, by way of being groups, identifying communities, whatever it is, essentially have to, by way of beliefs or behavior, say this is what makes us, us, right? So it doesn't necessarily make you wrong if you're an exclusive, if, 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 that groups are exclusive. But the question then becomes, how do we test what happens when that group responds to people who see things differently? And boy, you can read the news probably today, pull out your phone and see that there are a lot of groups out there that are looking to just, at the drop of a dime, tear off their gloves and let the group that sees something differently than them have it. You know what I'm saying? And by the way, Christians do that. And it's terrible they do it. Christians ought to lead out in the opposite. How so? Uh, I came across a study, I've mentioned this years ago, it's such a helpful study, uh, my grad days. Uh, called, uh, it was a book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it was in this book that this scholar looked at uh, revolutionary movements throughout society. And specifically, they're looking at revolutionary movements of oppressed people groups rising to power to overtake their oppressors. Okay? And what, they, what this guy saw in his studies, was that invariably, every time what happened was the oppressed groups, yeah, they rose to power, but they essentially then in turn became a new form of oppressors. Does that make sense? Like they went from being oppressed and they, they fought back the oppressors, okay, good, 
but now they were the oppressors, and it just, it just switched the roles. And the conclusion was like, oh my goodness, that just, the, the cycle just perpetuates, just rinse, recycle, you know, repeat, however many years later. But this is where the gospel is the antidote. And this is where the gospel, Christian friends, ought to lead us to respond to others who see things differently with great care, kindness, respect, and love. Because Jesus taught things like, love your neighbor as yourself. And actually, he went further and said, love your enemies. I feel like we can become numb to that teaching. We've heard it before, but consider that. Love your enemies. Christians ought to lead out with people who disagree with them, with not necessarily agreeing with those who disagree with them, condoning what they think if it goes against what God says, but laying down their lives in love for them. Are we seeing that? Christian friends, are we doing that? And we're missing that mark, which we'll do because we need, we need Jesus desperately ourselves. Are we owning that? So you can see, the tr does the truth of Jesus ring true when it's actually lived out? Jesus says, Jesus invites us to, to look into it. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and then finally, and we're gonna go even quicker here, I am the life. Jesus said elsewhere, I have come that you would have life and life to the, the fullest. This is the gospel. This is the good news, the promise of life forevermore, eternal hope. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And Jesus replied, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time? I love this statement. There's so much going on, especially in the original language. He said, don't you know me? In a far greater way than our English conveys, the original word in Greek is saying, don't you know me? Don't you, don't you understand me personally? It's, it's an experiential knowledge. It's like if I say I know Cindy, you know, my wife. I wouldn't, it's not just words I can bullet point out on a piece of paper knowledge. There's like so much more there that I could never put on a piece of paper. Jesus, Jesus is saying to Philip and through him to us, don't you know me? He knows us and wants us to know him. And then he adds, don't you know me, Philip, calling him by name. That's really the whole point of all of this. There's a way to the Father. There's a way into personal relationship with God. He wants us to be, and you know, in relationship with him. Philip, bless him, bless Thomas. They would ultimately give their lives preaching Jesus as the way, the truth, and life. History tells us for what it's worth. But in that moment, Philip, Philip had not yet come to grips that they were, grips, that they were standing before the great I am who wanted to know them, did know them by name, called them by name. And so here's what we do. Here's what we have. We have an invitation from Jesus that is exclusive, but also incredibly inclusive. And its exclusivity is, comes down to our sin and our pride. But it's inclusive in the sense of let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. It says else, elsewhere that uh, to all who receive him, to all who believe on his name, he gives the right to become children of God. If you're here today and you'd right, like to receive the way of Jesus' grace based on what he accomplished for you on the cross, you can receive him today. In fact, we'd love to come alongside you as best we can, support you, pray, pray for you. There's a little place on the card that you can indicate it. Not that checking a box brings you into a relationship with God. That's what happens in the heart when you receive him in these ways. But we can come alongside you, pray for you. For those of you who have received him, Jesus gives us the thought, the, the application. If you look down in verse 15, he goes on to say, if you love me, keep my commands. Jesus is saying, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and that way is through the cross. I'm gonna die for you to bring you into personal relationship with me so that will you follow me? Will you love me? And really, that's the key to what Jesus has done in the gospel. We live in hope and without fear. 
because the fear has been taken away. It's no longer up to you or me to earn our way into God's good graces. That's been accomplished through Jesus. John would later say, we love because God first loved us. We love out of the gift of God through Christ by way of loving him in response. And so we seek to follow him. It means not picking and choosing what we think is right and wrong. It means looking to his, his word, and maybe we have confusion. We look into that. We don't just, well, I know better. We look to live in his, in his ways. And if we mess up, we, we look to confess that. We look to for, uh, ask for forgiveness and all the rest of it. And then what's more is we look to make that love available to those around us. We, make to, we, we look to make the way, the truth, and the life available to Jesus, but not in a way where we find the nearest soapbox, stand up as tall as we can, beat our chest and say, we've got it figured out and you don't. That is so far away from the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is saying, hey, we don't have it figured out, but we found the one who's offering grace. Here, do you want him? That's our call including in an area that is just quick to say, you know, Christians are hypocrites and exclusive bigots. You know what? We are hypocrites. Humans are hypocrites, and, but we have received the grace of Jesus, and we go by that grace trying to offer him as best we can with his help. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming in this world to be the way, the truth, the life for us. We don't deserve it. We don't, we don't deserve that you came without sin to be sin for us, that we could receive the gift of righteousness in Christ. We don't deserve it. And so we say thank you. That's why we sing. Not to try to earn our way into your good graces and favor. We sing because you first loved us. Thank you for saving us from ourselves. And Father, forgive us. Forgive us here at Current. Forgive all of us who call ourselves Christian, follow you, and we fall short of the mark, particularly in the way of treating those who see things differently than us when we're called to lay down our lives. Not necessarily agree or condone, but forgive us when we go, you know, I've got to figure it out, or we come across in that way. Forgive us. Most of all, because it's distracting people away from your wonderful offer. Father, I want to pray what I prayed at the beginning of service, and that is that you would speak to us, you would touch us, because if you're not in this, we don't care. But if you're in this, would you speak into the lives and hearts of each of us now? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.